Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Pretty, seductive, compulsively mesmerizing, brutal, stunning, colorful, and dangerous, precise, blunt, funny, scary, bleak, savvy, perilous, rich, and satisfying. Let's give her a warm round of applause. Thank you. I fuck it up. <laughs> now I'm totally going to fuck it up. Um, this is absolutely the first time I've ever done a reading with a, with a beer of any sort in my hand, but a light beer in a can. So that's... Ex- Did you say, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, right. A glass of wine, a glass of champagne, yes. A canned beer, no. Um, there are so many things up here that make me happy. The fact that there's my book, and then, <laughs> and then Jonathan Franzen and the not gay sex between straight white men. Like, the whole thing makes me so happy. <laughs> um, thank you, Skylight, for having me and for, you know, um, Libby for, for making the display <laughs> of, of cheap beer and, and white trash snacks, which is, that's everything. It's, it's every, it means everything for this book. So um, I'm going to read. I made a last-minute decision on what I was going to read. Um, I'm going to read a section. Usually I, read, um, usually I read sections from The Serial Killer because um, her pieces are a little bit contained in a, you know, in a kind of a poetic way. And because we sort of have the beer and all this other stuff, I decided I was going to read a different scene um, from the narrator who holds the sort of linear story of the book. Um, so there are two cousins um, who are, I don't want, I, this is a spoiler alert, but who are more than cousins. Um, well, yeah, I won't, I won't say anymore. But one of them is a serial killer. One of them has a dead baby. Um, not like has it with her, but like has had a baby that died. Um, the main character, Rael, sort of hooks up with this detective and, and ends up, you know, uncovering these murders that have been done by her cousin. That's not a spoiler. Um, okay, so I'm going to read a, I'm going to read a scene from Rael's point of view. In the morning, by the lake, I come out of the scamp, dressed but sweaty, and I graze my hand over Cooper's shoulder. I kiss his neck. He sits by the water in the camp chair, tapping away on his laptop, the water rippled and bright. What's the thing you remember the most about Holly Jasper disappearing, he says. The one thing. He twists in the chair to face me, the metal legs stressed and bending. For days I've been wearing the same underwear, the same jeans, the same top. My hair curlier and heavier at the same time. There wasn't anyone strange in town, I say. What do you mean, he says. It was a dead week. In the summer there's always something going on, a car show, a carnival, bikers. But not that week. There weren't extra people here. 
school wasn't out yet, I say. I mean, maybe a couple of fishermen or retired people staying at the lake, but nothing big. You think it was someone here, he says. Yeah, I say and shrug. I pick a stray thread off his sleeve. You know, the calls coming from inside the house. It was one of us. Do you think she's still here, he says? Her body, I mean? Maybe, but they sure as hell never found it. Did anyone else disappear, he asks me. Other girls? No. I mean, leave town, he says. Her family, but they had to. They thought for a while, like unofficially, people thought it was the dad, but it wasn't. He starts to smile, the sun warm on his legs, but his face still in the shadow of trees. How do you know, he says. I shake my head. I got a feeling. It just wasn't. He pokes at the brass button on my jeans. How good's your feeling, he says. Pretty good, for what that's worth. That's worth a lot, he says. He closes the laptop and stretches, shoulders back, breastbone out. What's in it for you, I say. A contract, he says. For murder, I say, only half amused, and he laughs. For a book, he says. When he gets up, he's taller than I am, even when he's standing downhill of me. I'm only half as dangerous as you think I am, he says. I need clean clothes, I tell him. I'm twice as dirty as you think I am. I like that, he says. When we pull into Pine Bluff Estates in the Gran Torino, the contents of one room, not mine, are being thrown into a dumpster. There's a cop car parked to the side, dormant, lights off with an officer inside, typing away on a laptop that's balanced on the center console. Yikes, Cooper says. I scan the lot. Um, My car's not here, I say. Where'd your car go? I don't know. He parks next to the office, where we can see through the glass window that the manager is inside on the phone. Cooper gets out. He nods at the cop, why, I don't know, and leans in the office door. Then the manager sees me sitting in the passenger seat with the window down. Oh, honey, she says, yeah, the cops came and got your car. That was a couple days ago, she says. Now we got this going on. She and Cooper both look down the line of doors to the room being emptied. Two guys come out with a mattress and hurl it into a dumpster. Cooper turns his head to her before he asks, and she says, dead. She waves her hand. Happens, she says. They come out with a cooler and a suitcase. All his possessions, whoever he was, whatever he was in trouble for, once you die, they just throw out the mattress, your suitcase of belongings, maybe all you had in the world, and chuck them into a dumpster to drag away. She comes to the side of the car. I don't want to get you in trouble, she says, but that car was reported stolen. I huff out a nervous laugh. It was my dad's, I say. If I was going to steal a car, it wouldn't be a goddamn 94 Escort. Cooper slides in beside me, and the manager goes into the office, the black cordless phone in her hand. From the door, she says to me, you didn't have nothing in your room. No, I didn't. Well, Cooper says, where to? I've been planning to pack up my car and drive back home, take a shower, change my clothes, meet him somewhere out, or back at the scamp in my best jeans, a black shirt, my hair done, and makeup on my face. So I tell him how to get to the trailer park.
It's a road of trailer parks, one after the other. Some of them are nicer than others. Some are senior parks, 55 plus. There are apartments back there too. And next to the park my mother lives in, a huge cemetery with, with tall monuments, spires and angels, crosses. I point him into Cottonwood Park on the left, and he goes over the speed bumps down the five-mile-an-hour drive between tiny, run-down trailers. It's not the best park. We've been here since I was 10. Before that, we lived in a lone trailer on a rural route. Before that, in a basement apartment. Before that, in my grandmother's back room and back porch. My mom and Ray had their own trailer in another park when I was born that I've only seen pictures of. It was yellow, a single with a wavy edge that made it look modern or old-fashioned, depending on how old you were. It looks like shit in here. Jimmy, the neighbor's trailer, is up on cinder blocks because he needs to do plumbing and wire work below the floorboards. There's a skinny dog in the street just standing, Penny. She's a mutt, and she's about 16 years old. She always limps over to let me pat her soft head. I don't want to watch Cooper's face. I don't know where he's from, but it's not here. Even his tin can trailer has some appeal to it, some ironic roughing it bullshit that you can get away with when you have the money to get away with it. It's not ironic when it's your actual fucking life. There are about 25 black trash bags on my mother's lawn, filled with soft material, bedding, curtains, towels, and some just half full, tipped over with heavier things inside, books, old cheap brass picture frames. My mother's Grand Prix is parked on the gravel, but not the escort. Must be trash day, Cooper says, before I even tell him that that's the one. Stop here, I say. Here, he says, sort of forced and surprised. I push the door open before he has the car in park. I don't totally trust her to clean out her own shit, even when there's so much of it, and almost all of it has to go. She comes out of the sliding glass door, tiny and red-faced, heaving another bag. Here, she says, and thrusts it at me. It's soft, but heavy. I wonder if she took the burlap cushions off the couch. Mom, I say. Put it out, she says, and points. She goes back in and then reappears, sliding a twin mattress on its side. Blue satin flowers, old, flattened on the edges. Mine. Mom. She pushes it over the edge of the deck onto the grass where it lands in a puddle. She starts to fix her hair, taking it out of the ponytail and redoing it. She smooths the wispy back from her forehead, and then she notices Cooper. Mom, I say, watching the water seep up of the sides up the sides of the mattress. What are you doing with my stuff? Who's that? she asks. Cooper gets out of the car. Can I help you with some of this? he asks. No, you cannot help her, I say. Why don't you... Why don't you take this box spring, my mother says, and bust it up for me, and then we can bag it. They won't take it whole, she says. Then she goes inside and pushes the back of it toward the open glass door, and Cooper has no choice but to grab and pull. It comes out to the deck, just a rickety frame of cheap wood, and he pushes it off onto the mattress below. Sledgehammer's in the shed, my mother says. Mom! She comes out the sliding door, hunched over like a kid making a snowman, rolling another trash bag that has shoes, my shoes, spilling out of the open side. Where am I supposed to sleep? I ask her. Where you been sleeping, she says. I hear Cooper open the metal doors of Chuck's shed. Who knows what's even in there? I know he has tools, but Jesus, I half expect Cooper to find something embarrassing. A stack of dirty magazines or weird fucking moonshine. 
I watch Cooper grab an axe. When he takes a swing at the box spring, the dull blade gets stuck and he has to wiggle it out. My mom goes down the steps to him. You're kind of delicate for a big guy, she says. Then she points at the grid. You have to work the joints, she says, and takes the axe from him, swinging hard, way above her head so that he ducks, and when she hits, the frame springs apart, loose and broken. Like that, she says. Yes, ma'am. I watch him break it apart, hitting it with the axe and then pulling it with his foot on the frame, breaking off pieces that fit into a stretchy black trash bag, and then another. He gets it into two bags, sharp bits of wood jutting out. He wipes his forehead with the back of his wrist. I need some clothes, Mom. You should have thought of that when you disappeared and didn't answer my calls, she says. I didn't answer the first ones, and then my phone died. Left the charger in the motel room, which means it's probably in a dumpster now. I hear Penny's tags jingling as she limps across the broken pavement, and her shoulder leans into my side. Whatever kind of dog she is, she has a head like an Irish setter, soft and silky and deep red on top. Around the muzzle, she's gray. Hey, Penny girl, I say, and her sore old tail swishes back and forth. You can look, my mother says, pointing at the bags, her eyes small when she squints into the sun, her arms with loose skin. She shrunk to nothing except a hard little body under her clothes. But, she says, it's mixed in with regular trash. I did some cleaning, she says. When he didn't come back, I took it upon myself to move you out. Does Chuck know, I say? Does Chuck know what? That you did this, that you threw me out in trash bags, I say. It was his idea, she says. Bullshit it was. You said it was your idea. She leans on the edge of the deck against the rail where there's a partial awning, and she lights up a long, minty Salem. Look, she says, waving her cigarette fingers at me. Look, if you want. Cooper comes up behind me. Don't worry about it, he says. Who are you? My mother asks. He does this thing where he leans out with his hand, striding up to meet her. Cooper Gale, ma'am, he says. Well, Mr. Fancy Pants, she says, why don't you take her shopping? There's a tall boy of light on the picnic table. I wonder how long she's been at it. I can't believe beer does anything for her anymore. Come on, Cooper says. He pats my shoulder. I'm standing stock still, staring at my stuff in bags, at my mattress, face down in a puddle, the sides muddied and soaking, my broken bed frame, a bag that has books, probably my yearbook, books that were mine as a kid, maybe even photo albums just thrown onto the grass. The bags take up most of the lawn, right up to the road. Just don't get her pregnant, my mom says. She ain't no good at that. I ball my hands into fists, and that's when Cooper comes around to the front of me. In the car, he says, before I can charge her. Come on. He has me by the arms, and he walks me backward until I'm sitting in the passenger seat again. He bumps it out of there five miles an hour, maybe ten, over every speed bump, through all the shitty-ass trailers past poor Penny whimpering as we pull away. She is the meanest motherfucker I know, I say to him. When we're out on the main road again, he turns back the way we came, past all the other parks, Grovewood, Kings Park, Longacre. He stops at the four corners where down the block there's another cemetery and farther up a corner store with penny candy and glass bottles of Boylan's, and he turns to me. How old are you? I see the fear in his eyes, but I laugh at him. I'm 23, I say. I just moved back home. 
And that's when I break up in front of him all at once, my face crushed and wet and hot. Last summer, I choke out. Hey, he says. He pets the back of my head, smoothing his hand over my dirty hair. It's okay. I point for him to turn left down the corner, down to the corner store where I can get a paper bag full of Getz's caramels and a black cherry Boylan's. Inside, he strolls the aisles and he buys fishing line, a ball of twine, a package of bungees. It's nowhere I can get clothes or panties or even a toothbrush, but all I want is that bag of candy, the sweet soda like I would get when I was a kid riding to the store on my bike with khaki. You ever get a feeling about someone, Cooper says in the car? My mouth is wadded out with caramel. You know, like you did about the dad? Yeah, I say. And I think he's on to something else about my mother. I got a feeling about you, he says. Oh, yeah? Is it a hard-on? Sometimes, he says. Come with me. Where are you going? My face is scrubbed red and raw from crying, from pressing my hands into my eyes. My lips, where they're chapped at the edge, will stain black red from the soda. I got a list of places, he says. Other crimes. What kind of crimes, I say. Missing girls. I'm not a missing girl, I say. Not anymore, he says. I found you. He shows me how to pack up the scamp, how to hitch it to the Gran Torino, the two lined up and ready. He says, make sure the coupler latch is open and guides my hands over it. And then, he says, use the tongue latch to lower the coupler onto the ball. I start laughing, bent over, backed into him, and that's all it takes. After, we make sure everything inside is closed up and put away. We put the bed back into the table, secure the dry goods in airtight bins, and bungee the cupboard doors shut. He keeps his computer and his bag of notebooks and pens in the car with us with some water, some snacks, and cigarettes. He asks me, where is the best place to stop and get some clothes for me, underwear, and a toothbrush? In the next state, I say. Thanks. <laughs> I'm happy to answer questions if you have them. Um, I'm never going to drink this whole beer. Um, really never. Really never. Maybe. Um, so a lot of this book deals with a lot of dark material. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Uh, how do you deal with that in the writing process? Like, how do you come out of that? How do you go back to it? Um. It's really hard. <laughs> like, I don't. I don't. Yeah, it's hard. Never mind. Um, it's. I was working on this once I got into the big revisions of it, like long days at a time, and I would sort of emerge from my office and like stumble out into the kitchen and be like, "Somebody give me some pasta," and then sleep. Like it was. It's draining. To, to actually get there and stay there for a, for a period of time. Um, so I was glad when it was over. <laughs> like I was, I would, you know, I would have to stop and sort of like say I'm going to go for a walk or I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch like the stupidest television because I couldn't, if I was reading things, I couldn't be reading things that were equally dark. I couldn't be watching things that were equally dark. I needed to sort of have a balance of, 
you know, where I was working and what I was doing on the off hours. So, but there, there were a lot of carbs also. <laughs> there was carb loading, and then there was darkness, and then there was sleeping. That's how it went. <laughs> Um, they were like amazing to work with and uh, if you don't know who they are they are a small press that's based in Portland they are among the like the top tier of small presses so like Tin House and Grey Wolf and Algonquin and Zank like there's there's a sort of like level of small presses above all of the small presses that that are producing some of the most interesting stuff right now. Like, they're the people who are taking risks on things. Um, they don't have the pressure of a sales force. You know, if they want to print 500 copies of something and just sell it out of the back of a truck, they can. Um, so Tin House is sort of in between those things. But what happened for me at Tin House was I got, like, real editorial attention. I had a great relationship with my editor. And they have a great publicity team. So they were really good about sending the book out to people and getting reviews and sort of setting up things like a book tour in bookstores. And um, I think sometimes when you move beyond that tier of presses, you lose it. Like you lose that in a... Like my book at a big press would have been lost in in a bunch of Jonathan Franzen books. <laughs> you know? So... what? Preach, I'm preaching. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, they were really, really good to work with. They're, I mean, they're also like super selective. They publish 12 books a year. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they can sort of take on what they're really interested in. Um, they're not publishing cookbooks to sort of pay the bills. It's just what they want to work on. Um, I mean, they're also they're also bankrolled by old money, so so they have that liberty, but. Um, but they were, the, as a staff, they're they're fantastic to work with. So, yeah. I kind of like the way you take on the police or institutional authority um, as not really fair to me. I, I just like the banter of your dialogue, and it kind of shows, I think, anybody who's had experience talking to police, they always feel like, I don't know, I always feel like they're not going to feel like they're stupid or their story's not right. Or, um, yeah. I what your take is on that and like how you, I really enjoyed the way that's how I perceive it. Yeah, I mean, there's more of that when you know because the main character has a has a baby that dies. When the police interrogate her, they sort of, you know, well, what were you doing? That you know, they sort of try to blame her, and they, you know, there's for me, it was partially, partially, it was a female thing, like that that you know that the police have a different way of talking to women and police have a different way of talking to people who are in lower economic classes also so she you know she has two shots against her already um and that just that notion of like yep we're the you know we're the fuck ups in the trailer park like you can come in and throw our stuff out and you know you're not going to believe what we say so we're kind of at a loss like the, there's a there's a you know, a uh, disparity of, of power already. So, that, I mean, that is something that sort of runs through. And yet your character is cheeky and seems to 
taking this, you know, deals with codes, you know, in it with humans. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, I mean, e- either you have to be or you are, you're just buried by it. You know, otherwise you're just, you're the, you know, you're the kid on the ground with your face in the dirt being, you know, beat up by the police. It's really fun to see people like that. I noticed a few laughs and stuff, and, you know, I, I think it's cool. Thanks. Anybody else? So what about Steve? I've gone from uh, short stories to, uh, you know, uh, like one here in the future. What are your thoughts in the future? I'm gonna, I'm gonna drink this light beer, and um, I, it's very, very different. Like short stories and novels are completely different. Like I might as well be writing poems and novels, like very, very, very different. So I know some short story writers who struggle with novel writing and maybe have never written a novel, and I, that totally makes sense to me. And I know some novelists who have never written short stories like they just they people I think there's a there's a sort of like oh but they're both fiction but they're as forms they're so completely different um I wrote short stories a lot when I was working um which sounds like I don't work anymore I just I just lay around and (laughs) somebody peels grapes for me (laughs) um you know, when my kids were very little, I was working in advertising, and I would write short stories when I could. Like, I would write them at work, or I would write them at home. I would write them while I was feeding somebody. Like, um, And they were sort of my foray into getting stuff out. So that made sense to me. Like, I could, I could finish a story on little sleep in a 50-hour work week with a baby and see it published and be like, yeah, I did that. You know, that was not going to happen with a novel while the kids were really little. So, um, you know, I'm working on another novel that my my current agent is like, you're going to send that to me, right? You're going to send it to me tomorrow? <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. But yeah, there's, it's, you know, it's in the works. So, yeah. So with all that time kind of pressure and all that responsibility, um, I mean, in some ways, you know what, I, when I had, when I was working full time and my kids were really little, I had to do stuff when I had to do it. And it was, there's something about that, like, you have an hour right now, like, get to work. Um, that's different now. I'm like, oh, I have two hours. I have three hours. I'm gonna take the dog for a walk, and like, it's much easier to waste time when that's the only thing I have to do. Not that I don't have. I mean, like, you know, my children are thirty. Like, you know, like they still require sandwiches and things like that. But um, <laughs> sandwiches and beer and like <laughs> funyuns. Um, they're a big fan of the Funyuns, um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's something to be said for the for for your time being condensed. You know, it makes you do something that that you otherwise you might miss. Do you fight computer use or do you say no Facebook? Do you know, do you do? I try to. I mean, I 
I'm pretty good about not being distracted while I'm actually writing, but I also find that it's very helpful for me to step away for 10 minutes and be like, you know, I'm just going to look at Twitter and I'm going to make a cup of tea and I'm going to like clear my head a little bit and then I'm going to go back to work. So I don't, I don't tend to fall into the trap of just like, now I'm wasting time, but I'm putting time in because I'm sitting at the computer. But it is helpful for, t- for me to step away occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. Did you do a lot of research for the story, or did a lot of it just come from the experiences or stories that you've ever had? Most of it came, I mean, most of it was, was just sort of experience born, but then occasionally you have to research something like what does a body look like when it's been dead for four days? Like things I don't I don't know. You know, so in that case it's great to have I can do a quick bit of research on the internet, see some gruesome pictures and be like, okay, I got that and then go back in and start writing, you know. Um so I, I kind of research on the fly. Like I don't spend a long time doing it, but where I need it, I kind of, I know I can break away and dip in and find an answer fairly quickly. Yeah? It's kind of an unfair question, but I notice a lot of writers are, are genre bending right now. And obviously you're aware of literary, you have a literary Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of these writers who write well and have a literary that's going into crime. And I'm wondering, I know there's money in these books, but I think there's something more that you guys are drawn to, and I'm just trying to figure out, like, is it just that kind of kinkiness of getting into that genre and giving it a um, literary lift? Or- yeah, I mean, I, I, talked, I was talking to some people in Sacramento about this a couple days ago, and uh, I was reading with Jody Angel, who is a similar writer to me, and one, there was no money in my book, <laughs> and two... <laughs> Um, right. It's it. What that? What like? What I was writing from is more from. I mean, these are my people. My my people commit crimes, and they have troubles with the police, and sometimes they're crazy. And and that to me, it was. It's more interesting to have the stakes raised on the choices than to have these sort of like you know, middle-class John Updike decisions that are like, am I going to not make him coffee this morning to let him know <laughs> that I'm dissatisfied? Like, these are much bigger things. Like, and it, to me, like, not only is it more interesting to me, but it's, that's what I know. You totally are making this clear to me. So, I mean, the only follow-up I have this is, are, do you have writer friends you send this stuff to that help you, or do you prefer to keep it with your editor? Because um, I like what you're saying. And you're really making it understand a lot of writers, even the one that came to Skylight last night, mm. who's been noted by the New York Times, who, for this genre bending, I don't think any of these critics are getting it. And what you're saying is really, um, it's real and it's deep, and I like it. And yeah. I'm just wondering, who's in on it? Are you talking to your friends? <laughs> What's going on? If I have sent it to anybody, yeah. I have, have killed them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, I don't like, I, I have people who read things um, way along. But the the early drafts, I can't. I like. I have to keep it to myself. I feel weird about it, and it's it, it's just it's like letting somebody watch you go to the bathroom or something. Like it's too weird. It's I, like I like to work until I'm comfortable to let people see it, and then and then yeah, I have a couple of friends that I'm like, do you want to look at this? And and that's it. And there's maybe two people and an editor, and that's it. Yeah. Yep. 
Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming out. Please, please grab one of the last two beers and some Funyuns. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.